Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Now this is The Naked Scientist with me, Ben Valsler. And I'm Helen Scales. I'm going to kick things off this week with a story about one of my favourite places to be, and that is on a coral reef. Now, anyone else who's been lucky enough to visit one will know that they come packed with colourful creatures and colourful fish. And now a new study reveals that some of those fish send out private messages using patterns of ultraviolet light that us humans and many other animals can't see. Well, it can be very important for fish to be able to tell the difference between different species, especially when it comes to damselfish. These feisty tiddlers defend their farms of seaweed from intruders and the worst kind of intruder is a member of the same species because they can come along and strongly compete for food and mates. Now Ulrika Seebeck from the University of Queensland in Australia led a team of researchers with the enviable task of studying two species of damselfish on the Great Barrier Reef and they've discovered that the Ambon damselfish, a small yellow fish, can read secret facial patterns of you spots and stripes to tell one species from another. Is it not obvious? Are there not big, gross morphological differences between one species and another? No, these two actually, certainly to a human eye, um, look very similar. Really, I think we'd have a tough time telling them apart. If you got it under a microscope, you'd you'd be able to pick it out. But essentially, the colour in our visual range is very similar. What the team did was they presented a wild Ambon damselfish with two other damselfish inside clear plastic tubes. This was in the wild, on the reef. Um, One of them was the same species, and the other one was this other species the lemon damselfish. And uh, under normal light conditions, the Ambon damselfish is preferred attacking other Ambons, so racing towards them and saying, you know, off you go. And if you've ever seen a damselfish in the wild, you'll know they are quite feisty for their size. They do, they think they can take on divers, which is quite fun. Anyway, what they also did was they put these fish inside plastic tubes that blocked UV light so that those UV patterns weren't visible to the fish. And when that happened, they had no preference for a fish of the same species or of the other species, showing that it probably is quite important to be able to see UV. They also went into the lab and uh, trained these damselfish using food rewards to distinguish between drawings of these UV face patterns. So really together, these findings indicate that these Ambon damselfish fish can see these intricate UV patterns and they probably use them to recognise faces of other fishes. UV makes a really ideal secret signal because not many other fish can actually see it. It's, it's got a very short wavelength um, which means it's quite easily scattered in water making it actually not that useful for very precise vision and certainly over a longer distance. And very long-lived predators often actually protect their eyes from UV damage. That's what we do a lot um, uh, with our eyes um, and we screen out a lot of the UV um, and this means that damselfish can communicate with each other, find mates and warn each other to keep their distance without ruining that camouflage against predators because the predators can't see it. And next, the team uh, want to dive deeper into the UV vision of various fish to find out how far they can see and perhaps to see whether they can distinguish not just between different species but also between individual fish as well. Wouldn't that be wonderful? You could see your mate across the reef (laughs) based on the patterns on his face. There's quite a number of fish that take advantage of the fact that other species see slightly different range of of the spectrum, aren't there? Because deep sea fish use essentially red light as an invisible flashlight. 
That's right. That's really why the sea is blue, because the red light gets absorbed very quickly. So if you can emit or detect red light, you've got a really great secret wavelength as well. So, yes, take advantage of the secret signals and you can do very well. <laughs> now, researchers in Oxford and California have found a way to stop mosquitoes from growing wings, keeping them grounded and stopping the spread of diseases like dengue fever. Writing in the journal PNAS, Luke Alfie and colleagues highlight how controlling the principal vector, in this case the Aedes aegypti, mosquito can help to reduce the increasing problem of dengue and dengue hemorrhagic fever. Current vector control methods are simply not effective enough and we're now facing an estimated 50 to 100 million new infections annually. Now one promising method is to control the mosquito population by releasing sterile males and this in turn will reduce the population in the next generation. This is known as the sterile insect technique or SIT and although it showed some very promising results back in the 70s it's not being used in any large scale programs today. Another technique is to introduce lethal or incapacitating traits into the females of the population, as it's the females who will bite and spread disease, and so that makes it particularly appealing. This new study is based on modifying a gene called the actin-4 gene in such a way as to render the female mosquitoes flightless. This gene is active in the pupil stage of the female mosquito, predominantly in an area called the indirect flight muscles, and the researchers created a modified insect where this gene is only properly expressed in the presence of a chemical called tetracycline and this is through a method that, that they use to switch off genes called the TET-OFF system. In the absence of tetracycline, such as in the wild, these insects will reach maturity but they then won't be able to fly. Now, allowing them to reach maturity unharmed is actually quite an important aspect of this. It means that the larvae can still develop, they can compete with other larvae that don't carry this mutation, and then only the adult female, that's the one that causes all the problems, is actually affected. It also means that rather than having to rear and release enormous swarms of these modified sterile males, we can transport, store and release these modified eggs. Now, as the eggs can be stored and stockpiled, this means that any control programme can actually start with a far bigger push than if we're relying on the maximum mosquito-rearing capacity of any particular lab. The eggs will hatch, the females will be essentially killed off immediately because they're unable to feed, they're unable to avoid predators, and they can't find a mate. But the males will mate with the non-modified females, pass on this flightless mutation to the next generation, you'll have the same thing happening. The females will reach maturity and then immediately die off. And this should rapidly reduce the number of mosquitoes around to act as a vector for disease. They also say it might work with other species of mosquitoes. So this is definitely a very promising thing for us to be looking at. And dengue is particularly problematic because we, we don't really have a treatment for it, as, let alone a way to prevent it, I don't think. But I can also see that people might get a bit upset about sending out these genetically modified insects into the world. So we, I guess we're going to have to be very sure that this works. But it's the kind of thing that's definitely going to be controversial at some stage, I imagine. It, it probably will be. The, it's quite species-specific. The males only mate with this species. So the likelihood of this modified gene actually getting out into other species is very unlikely. And as we seen it makes the females entirely useless they cannot get around to breed anyway so i suspect that it will probably turn out to be a very good thing i'm not anti-gm there's better things to do with gm like this to deal with diseases than necessarily just feeding ourselves with a bit more food anyway i'm going to take things back to the ocean but back it a long time into the past with some new fossil evidence that suggests that there were gigantic sharks lurking in cretaceous seas around 90 million years ago 
But these ones weren't terrifying monsters. They were, in fact, probably sluggish fish that sat around on the seafloor munching shellfish. Well, this isn't actually the first time that paleontologists have discovered fossilised parts of Dicodus mortoni, um, but new findings in Kansas, in America, reveal that these mysterious sharks went extinct at about the same time as dinosaurs, and they were probably much bigger and more slow-moving than previously thought. Now, based on fossilised teeth, scales and parts of the jaw, the team publishing in the journal Cretaceous Research, led by Keshnu Shimada of DePaul University in Chicago, Illinois, estimate that these sharks could have been over 10 metres in length. That's huge. That's bigger than two Humvees parked end-to-end, and it's bigger than the basking sharks that cruise our oceans today. They're terrifying-looking creatures, basking sharks. I I appreciate they're not particularly dangerous, but just the sheer size of them. I think they're lovely, especially, and and whale sharks, which are bigger still. They're all rather wonderful to think these huge fish are still in our oceans, but maybe even bigger ones used to be around as well. And the reason we think that they were probably slow moving was from the shape of their scales, which were rather smoothed off. And other sharks that move quicker have actually pointed scales, which help to improve their swimming efficiency by reducing drag. Um, And their flat plate-like teeth could have been perfect for crushing hard shellfish. And it's thought that these ancient sharks might have looked something similar to nurse sharks which uh, spend their time today lying around on the sea floor and that does prove that not all sharks need to keep swimming to breathe which is um, something that people commonly uh, think but actually isn't true and there's an even bigger shark uh, fossil shark teeth have been found from this same group and, and that suggests that a closely related species to Tychodus mortoni could have been even more gigantic and perhaps was the biggest ever shellfish eater ever on earth which is a pretty fantastic label record to have achieved But uh, just why these sharks were so enormous at this time, um, as well as many other creatures, in fact, were quite huge at the time in the sea. There were big clams and big fish. It all remains something of a lovely, enticing mystery. It's amazing what we can learn from fossils, and you'd think that we can learn a lot about the physiology, about the shape these things are, but the fact that you can actually learn how they might have acted when they were alive, I think, is incredible stuff. Thank you, Helen. And a big mystery is also what we're looking at whenever we look out of our own atmosphere and out to the Milky Way. We've discovered that one quarter of the star clusters in our galaxy may, in fact, be aliens, according to a paper in Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. The halo around our galaxy contains a number of clusters of stars, and these are called globular clusters, or GCs, and they orbit the centre of the galaxy. They tend to be more dense, a bit older, and contain more stars than the galactic clusters, which form the very familiar disk shape. Astronomers have known for a while that percentage of these GCs are alien in origin, captured as the Milky Way accreted dwarf galaxies. But estimating what proportion of these GCs are aliens has actually proven very difficult. Now, Terry Bridges, an astronomer at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada, and and Duncan Forbes of Swinburne University of Technology in Australia, have used data from the Hubble telescope, among other sources, and compiled the largest ever high-quality database recording the age and chemical properties of these star clusters. And they've used this to estimate the proportion of aliens that are in our galaxy. So how do you go about figuring out if there's aliens out there? 
Well, there are a few dead giveaways. Firstly, you can observe how the clusters themselves move. Clusters that used to belong to a dwarf galaxy may retain some of its momentum after being swallowed by the Milky Way, and this will present itself in a distinct pattern, sometimes going the wrong way, orbiting around our galaxy. The second method is to use the metallicity of the cluster as a measure of its age. Now, metallicity can simply be thought of as the proportion of elements present in a star or in a star cluster that are not hydrogen or helium. Older clusters, or those with less activity, would be expected to have a lower metallicity. And this means that the relationship between metallicity and age can be used as an indicator for the history of any particular globular cluster. Bridges and Forbes discovered two distinct groups, one a fairly constant age of around 12.8 billion years, and one with a far wider range of ages. This younger strand is likely to consist of dwarf galaxies accreted by our galaxy in the last few billion years, and it accounts for hundreds of millions of stars, even as much as 25% of what we see in the halo of the galaxy. Astronomers have already confirmed that two dwarf galaxies, Sagittarius and Canis Major, have contributed globular clusters to the Milky Way, and these made up a significant proportion of the 93 clusters that they studied. However, even once these were removed from the equation, there's strong evidence that the remaining clusters originated from an additional six as yet unconfirmed dwarf galaxies. So, as always, space is enigmatic and fascinating, and there's still lots more to learn. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.